Come, Holy Spirit, now and take this word that you preached to your people in exile and bring a message to your people who are waiting for the kingdom of God to appear today. Lord, in the power of your spirit, grant me utterance. Give me the right words to say. I pray for uh, clarity. I pray for conviction rooted in the truth of the scriptures. And I pray for all of us that we would have open hearts and minds to hear what you may be saying to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Hey, y'all, let's talk about politics. <laughs> nothing, nothing makes people feel relaxed and at peace like that statement in church. I've never felt so disconnected uh, from the country in which I live in my whole life. More and more, I feel like I don't belong here. Now, for many, this sense of not belonging is not a new experience. This is a feeling that many people have had long before me. This is the perception that many African Americans have had over the decades, that the land of their birth merely tolerates their existence, but they don't really belong here. And even though we're told repeatedly in the New Testament that as followers of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is our true motherland, our true homeland, and that we are merely strangers and aliens sojourning in this world for a while, I have never really felt that way, but now I feel it. I feel like an exile in my own country, and I'm, I'm not the only Christ follower to express that sentiment. I hear it from more and more people all the time. What could possibly be making us feel that way? Well, let's take the presidential race. <laughs> you know how much I love to talk about politics. I do it all the time. One, uh, one candidate is, is personally odious, a narcissist, who uh, has consistently promoted fairly identical prop, uh, policies to the other candidate prior to becoming a nominee for the White House. Uh, So-called evangelical leaders and Christian college presidents have willingly embraced someone who appears, in my humble opinion, to, I, don't, I couldn't say they're a sociopath, but they act like one. Uh, the very ones who years ago thundered that character matters under a previous administration need to go back and get on their knees in front of Bill Clinton and beg forgiveness because obviously what really matters is access to power. And the other current presidential candidate um, continues to present us with a Gordian knot for convictional Christians. This candidate is a proud standard bearer for what John Paul the Great called the culture of death and wears with pride the New York Times descriptor of being the candidate from Planned Parenthood. This candidate has likewise made no secret that she opposes First Amendment religious liberty for those whose Christians, Christian convictions run counter to the moral revolution we are experiencing in our country, stating laws have to be backed up with resources and political will, and deep-seated religious beliefs have to be changed. And that's just chilling. I'm reminded of the uh, great philosopher Jerry Garcia, 
who said constantly choosing the lesser of two evils is still choosing evil. Constantly choosing the lesser of two evils is still choosing evil. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. It's not all legal structures and an expanding number of of the United States are emerging that are criminalizing Christian conviction. Before I give this example, I need to let you know that at Christ Church, we are a welcoming community and our guidance for what we say and how we treat people is the unconditional self-sacrificing love that we ourselves have experienced in Jesus Christ. We want to show Christ-like hospitality hospitality to everyone who comes through our doors. We already want to show love and welcome and respect to everyone we encounter regardless of how they self-identify or where they're coming from. But that being said, there are breathtaking attacks against religious liberty that are being codified into law in this country right now. Case in point. A new anti-discrimination law took effect in Massachusetts on the 1st of October, particularly seeking to provide bathroom accommodation in public spaces for those who considered themselves to be transgendered. But this law also provided criminal penalties for those found guilty of verbal harassment of transgendered persons. In other words, failure to use the pronoun preferred by an individual or saying something derogatory about a transgendered individual is now a criminal offense in Massachusetts. And the state has specifically targeted churches for the enforcement of this law. Regarding this law, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination under their pamphlet, Gender Identity Guidance, says this. Even a church, this is a state document, even a church could be seen as a place of public accommodation if it holds a secular event, such as a spaghetti supper, that is open to the general public. The result of that, brothers and sisters, is that the state of Massachusetts has arrogated to itself the authority to tell the one holy Catholic and apostolic church when it is doing something religious or secular. I can clear that up for the state of Massachusetts right now. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Everything we do is religious. Everything we do is Christ-centered. You don't even need to ask us that question. And if we do have a spaghetti supper, Jesus is in the sauce. (laughs) And everything we do is by nature open to the general public. We didn't check your membership coming into the building. Writing in the Washington Post, UCLA legal scholar Eugene Volokh accurately defines what is at stake here. This is UCLA law professor. Now, churches hold events, quote, open to the public, close quote, quote, all the time. It's often how they seek converts. And even church secular events, which I take to mean events that don't involve overt worship, are generally viewed by the church as a part of its ministry and certainly as a means of the church modeling what it believes to be religiously sound behavior. Under Massachusetts law, Volokh continues, Churches refusing to use transgender persons' preferred pronoun would be be punishable discrimination. Punishable, punishable discrimination. Church leaders have to use the words that the law requires, even when they view them as false or even blasphemous, and have to suppress offensive speech by their congregants. Congregants. I don't share this view, he writes, but I take it that some do. 
you need to get me sized up for a prison jumper right now. If I'm in Massachusetts, I'm going to jail. A nearly identical law is already on the books in the state of Iowa. It's not limited to Massachusetts, and it's coming here. And that's why many of us feel like we are in exile in our own country. And I am so thankful to God that the Old Testament passage today is Jeremiah 29 because of that. What we read was a portion of a letter the prophet Jeremiah was inspired to write to the Judean exiles in Babylon. The context is that in 597 B.C., the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, so Judah and Benjamin together, and taken into captivity most of their top government officials, religious leaders, intellectuals, and artisans, along with we don't know how many average Judean citizens. So what did that mean for those people, for God's covenant people taken into exile? Well, to begin with, they were ripped from everything they were familiar with. The world as they knew it was gone. This was, this was never supposed to happen to them. They had been told by the prosperity gospel preachers of their day that they were God's anointed and no harm could befall them because God's own dwelling, the temple in Jerusalem, was in their midst. And so in Jeremiah 7 verse 4, Jeremiah quotes their prosperity gospel preachers who said, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, meaning nothing bad can happen to us. The temple of the Lord is right here. And now they were ripped from all that was familiar, everything that they knew, what was considered normal. Their world had utterly changed. And isn't that what many of us have experienced today in our exile? In the short time that I've been alive, our cultural context has flipped on its head. We've seen the very definition of good and evil inverted in just my 55 years so that core Christian conviction is not only seen as just being out of step, which it always has been out of step, now it's seen as being downright wicked. Those taken into exile experienced tremendous social and economic insecurity. Being a Jew in Babylon meant that if you wanted to continue to maintain the social and economic standards you had experienced previously back in Judah, you had to surrender your deeply held convictions. You had to surrender your commitment to Israel's God. And that's the whole point of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And you can go back and read that, remember? Daniel didn't just get thrown in the lion's den for any old reason. It was because he wasn't going to surrender his convictions about the God of Israel. The three Hebrew children didn't get thrown into the fiery furnace because they had snubbed a party invitation from the king, but because they would not surrender their loyalty to Israel's God. In our own country, there are people today who have lost their jobs and their economic security, their, their homes even, precisely because of their Christian convictions. And that is an increasing trend in North America. Uh, there was a, a journal article in the medical journal Bioethics was released about uh, back in September, I think. In that article, it was argued that uh, physicians, people who were entering into medical school, should be screened to make sure that they were on board with the current social and moral revolution in North America. 
And if they could not support abortion and euthanasia, they should not be allowed to practice medicine or, moreover, not even allowed in medical school. Dr. Al Mohler says that it is now increasingly evident that on the other side of this great culture shift, on the other side of this moral revolution, the professions are going to be on the front line of what will be closed culturally and perhaps even professionally closed to Christians. In exile, God's covenant people were a despised and humiliated minority in Babylon. In this country, while 70% of the U.S. population identifies as Christians, the actual number of convictional Christians, based on folks like uh, Ed Stetzer, who studies these things, those who regularly attend worship, and those who order their lives around the scriptures and their faith of G- in Jesus Christ, that number is actually somewhere between 20 and 25%. And this is why Christian, Christians who have the convictions of biblical Christianity in this country better start caring now about how police and the judicial system treat minorities. And in the context of exile, that's when God says this to his covenant people. The first thing that God reminds them is, no matter what it seems like, God is in control. God is the one who is overseeing their exile, not Nebuchadnezzar. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The exile was judgment against Judah's unfaithfulness and rebellion. But more than that, God wanted them to know that he was in control of the situation. He was the one ordering their steps. And likewise, when the world around us seems to be careening towards moral, social, and cultural chaos, when we feel marginalized and uprooted, when we lose jobs in our homes and maybe even our freedom because of unbending commitment to Jesus Christ, do not despair. God is in control. History has not come off the rails. The God of Israel still rules the universe. He says, settle in for the long haul. There, there were those who were saying and the, uh, that the exile was only going to last for a couple of years. But in reality, after about 10 years, Nebuchadnezzar went back to Jerusalem and destroyed that city and raised the temple to the ground, taking even more people into exile. And by the way, after that, about five years later, he went back and took even more people into exile in 581. The exile was going to last for 70 years as God had decreed and not for two. And so God instructs his people, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Hang your pictures and unpack your boxes. (laughs) A few years ago, we moved to Durham. I don't know if we had a premonition or what, but most of our boxes did not get unpacked. And we didn't hang all our pictures on the wall. But as soon as we we were unpacked and every picture we had was up when we moved here in 2008. 
Instead of pining for Jerusalem, get on with the business of living in the new reality. And brothers and sisters, God calls us to the same thing. Instead of pining away from, for some past decade, some Aussie and Harriet, and those of you who are younger than me don't even know what I'm talking about, some Aussie and Harriet, leave it to Beaver, okay, Brady Bunch, you know, full house maybe, I don't know, am I finally getting up with your decade yet? I don't know. For that kind of world, don't pine away for that. Recognize that we are called to live out the gospel in the world we live in right now. Build and maintain the community of faith in the city to which you've been taken in exile. He writes this, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's telling the people of God to maintain the community of faith. Now, obviously, I think about evangelism in that context. But I want us to also think about another form of evangelism. And I think this is critical. And you're probably not going to hear this anywhere else in in Winston-Salem but here today. Um, Having babies and raising them as followers of Jesus Christ. It used to be said, tongue-in-cheek, of Chicago politics, vote early and often. Well, that could be said of the childbearing encouragement Jeremiah gives to the exiles, early and often. A few years ago, Philip Longman, a demographer for the New New America Foundation, wrote a provocative piece in which he said, the great difference in fertility rates between secular individualists and religious or cultural conservatives augurs a vast demographically driven change in modern societies. It's true, all around the world, there's a consistent theme. People of faith have more children because we have hope in the future. We believe in the future. God calls us to multiply and increase by sharing our faith, but also by living out our confidence in him as demonstrated in how we structure our families. In fact, in the Book of Common Prayer, in the Introduction for Holy Matrimony, the very first thing that the Introduction for Holy Matrimony says that God instituted instituted Holy Matrimony for was for the procreation of children and the nurture and raising of them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That is so true that today, even if we were, if I was to, uh, and this is true for any uh, minister in our Anglican movement, the Anglican Church in North America, if someone comes to us and says in their premarital counseling, well, we never plan to have children, we don't intend to have children, then we cannot have a marriage because it is against what we say marriage is for, rooted in Scripture. Multiply there and do not decrease. We're told that we are to encounter our exile in a positive posture, a stance of positive engagement with the land of our exile. Verse 7 says, but seek the welfare. The word there is shalom, peace, prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the place in which you are in exile. And let me ask you this. Do you love the land of your exile? You're supposed to love the land of your exile. I do. I love the city in which I've been exiled. It doesn't even feel like exile. I love Winston-Salem. What's not to love? <laughs> this is, I'm seriously, if, if, 
is like, I just wish I could pet it. It's just adorable. I love it so much. I don't know why the Chamber of Commerce doesn't have me as its spokesperson. You'll love Winston-Salem. I do. I love this town. I love the people in it. I love its diversity. I love its arts. I love its community spirit. I love, I love its neighborhood. I love its, its history. I love the Moravian heritage here. I love the way that we do try to care for the poor. I love the way that we've revitalized the downtown. I love the way that there is racial diversity. I love this town. And I never knew I was going to be here. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, are you ever going to live in Winston-Salem? I would have said, there's no way. I'm not, allowed, I'm not allowed west of Fayetteville. What are you talking about? <laughs> My uh, youngest brother-in-law says, Ben Sharp, the farther west you go in North Carolina, the happier you get. <laughs> We love the city into which we have been sent, not by assimilating into the surrounding pagan culture on the one hand and not by isolating ourselves through Christian tribalism on the other. We should be so much a part of the city for good that if we weren't there, we would be missed. And through the beauty of the city of God, we seek to win the city of man. Tim Keller, somebody who loves cities, writes, Jeremiah's letter told the exiles to neither assimilate nor separate, but live out their lives as a community seeking the peace of the city. So we are not only to be witnesses by our individual lives, but by the beauty of our communal life. I don't want to just stop right there. One of the, one of the comments I heard from multiple people uh, multiple times uh, the, at the cookout, you know, where the great plague uh, originated last week. And, uh, <laughs> It swept through the community. I'm surprised there's anybody here this morning. But, uh, but one of the things I heard from our guests uh, while they were there was we, we hear so much about Christ Church and how you are so active in serving this community. I heard that from multiple people. I didn't even know we had a reputation. We should, we should love this place so much that in our communal life they would see the beauty of God. Keller goes on to say, we do this through generosity with money and simplicity of life. Through races and classes loving together over barriers. Through sexual purity and respect shown by men and women to one another in relationships. The scripture here says God commands his people to pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the city. Pray for this nation. If you, if you and I give up on prayer, we have fallen into despair. And despair is not a Christian virtue. Um, the prayers of the people are not just for the clergy to pray. Sometimes we pray because we are, are afraid of dead air in prayer. Dead air in prayer. The prayers of the people are the prayers of the people. Lift up your voice audibly. And when those categories come up, praying for the world and for the church, when the categories come up for praying for, for peace and justice, when those categories come up, speak out and pray for the city. Pray for the nation. The community of faith is blessed when it blesses the city. So are you worried about your place or the place of the church in the culture? Well, as we seek the blessing and the welfare, the shalom of the land of our exile, the church will be blessed. For it is in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
So, beloved, no, we don't belong here. We never belonged here, even when we felt like we belonged here. But in love, we do serve here. Jesus went to the city. Jesus went to Jerusalem, the city that he loved so much that he wept over. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings and you would not. And he wept. And he went to that city and he was rejected and he was taken outside the gate and nailed to a cross. But by accepting even that humiliation, what the city did not realize what he, was that he was working God's plan of redemption in the world. Again, Tim Keller says, Jesus went down to the city and was crucified outside the gate, sent into the howling wilderness, the biblical metaphor for forsakenness, losing the city. Jesus lost the city that was so that we can be city, citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light in the city that is. Our citizenship is in the city to come. And by his grace, he equips us for the city that is. Yeah, we're in exile. But we are here for the good of the city into which we have been exiled. And one day, I think soon, another city, a city seen by John coming down from heaven. The city of the new Jerusalem will be here. And then we will finally realize that our exile is over and we have come home. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.